Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. International organizations whose activities unavoidably have political consequences nonetheless have a well-earned reputation for being apolitical or depoliticized. Why, when so much of what they do seems intrinsically political, is that reputation for being apolitical a good thing? What are the consequences of the depoliticization of such organizations? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Marike Lewis and Lucille Mertens, whose names I'm afraid I may be butchering. I'm sorry about that. Uh, they're authors of the recently published book, Why International Organizations Hate Politics, Depoliticizing the World. Marika Lewis is Associate Professor of Political Science at Sciences Po Grenoble, that is the Institute for Political Studies, I guess, in Grenoble. Uh, her research focuses on international organizations, in particular the International Labor Organization, or ILO, and she currently works on transnational business actors and the role of employers' federations as diplomatic actors. Lucille Mertens is Senior Lecturer in Political Science and International Relations at the University of Lausanne. Her, in Switzerland, her current work focuses on how the United Nations intended to keep the environment on the agenda during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for being with us today, Marika Lewis and Lucille Mertens. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you with us. So you've just got this book out, Why International Organizations Hate Politics, Depoliticizing the World. Why don't we start there and you know have you just say a little bit about the main themes of the book and, you know, what people should look forward to when they read it. So the idea for the book um, emerged from unexpected similarities between our two and rather different uh, fieldwork experiences. Um, I was conducted ethnographic research at the UN Environment Programme, UNEP, and when I was there, I was always puzzled by how UNEP staff would claim not to do politics, even though their mandate, which is to protect the environment, is quite political. And um, I, I could hear on a daily basis staff would insist saying that um, there's an apolitical, uh, neutral nature of the assessment that they were doing, even though this publication very often include political recommendation. When we go on the side of Marie's work, um, she went through a similar episode at the International Labour Organization, the ILO. Um, there she would regular, regularly hear member states saying, that they do not deal with political matters and their delegates saying that they do not pick sides regarding uh, labor law. What's interesting is that they insisted that the 
the technical dimension of the negotiation that were the most important part, instead of the political implication of their work on international labor rights. And so when we combined our empirical experiences, we started to think about these processes through which internationalization pretend to be outside of politics. And when we look at academic work uh, on internationalization, this is kind of an elephant in the room. Lots of people, lots of scholars have observed similar patterns. Um, and in the book, we decided to take this apolitical claim seriously um, to see where it comes from and how it translates into practice. And we do that in, in a variety of, of cases. Uh, we look at international bureaucracies as much as member states, and we investigate different thematic uh, fields. We look at international labor rights, the protection of the environment, but also humanitarian action, development, global health, security, peacekeeping, or even international trade. And when we analyze these different cases together, what we see is that IOs cannot be reduced to apolitical mechanisms. Um, they are not just apolitical uh, processes established to uh, facilitate inter international cooperation. What we see, though, is that there is a general process of depoliticization that is taking place. And I will let Marie explain a bit more what we mean by depoliticization. Great, thanks. Yeah, th thank you uh, for the introduction. And yes, of course, uh, talking about depoliticization and politics, we need a, a little bit of definition here. So depoliticization, as we use it uh, in the book, is a process, uh, a process in which or through which a situation is considered to be outside of politics or framed as apolitical. But of course, because international organizations are political creatures addressing very political questions, like Lucille said, we talk about security, development, environment, migration, labor, uh, depoliticization for us remains a political process, but it consists in minimizing, concealing, and even sometimes trying to eliminate politics within international organizations. So politics here, we define it in a rather inclusive way as every kind of activity performed by a variety of actors. It can be diplomats, international civil servants, experts, NGOs, any kind of activity which has to do with, broadly speaking, the detention of authority, the exercise of power, the activity of negotiations, agenda setting, and the delivery of just of just policies or policies that are perceived as being just and, and going in the right direction. So it entails, of course, both uh, conflictual dynamics, but also cooperative ones. Uh, and this is important for us to insist also on the cooperative aspects, because sometimes politics is defined very much in terms of conflicts and differentiation. And we also wanted to insist that Politics is also about elaborating uh, similar interests and worldviews. So to be clear, the question we raise is not whether IOs are apolitical or if IO action is successfully depoliticized, but rather how do they perform depoliticization, de sorry, and what are the consequences of that? And to do that, we explore practices uh, which are related to claiming expertise, to formatting neutrality, looking at very routinized practices such as producing reports or guidelines, but also managing time. And I'm sure we'll have time to expand on this temporal dimension. And for the logics, so why do they depoliticize and, and to what end? We show that depoliticization is meant to perform a rather functional and pragmatic logic of action based on fulfilling needs and necessity, but also in order to acquire some legitimacy and sometimes even to monopolize the legitimacy on certain topics. Um, and finally, we show that depoliticization also enables international organizations not to be held responsible for their activities. 
Well, that's an interesting point uh, that there is a kind of uh, escape hatch for the international organization. So if they say they're depolitical or unpolitical, apolitical, whatever their exact term ought to be, uh, they can always say, well, you know, we couldn't really get involved in the politics, so therefore we're not responsible for the outcome. But I mean, I think this is an interesting insight that, you know, a political, an apolitical stance or depoliticization, um, you know, is something that, as you say, sort of has to be performed. A- at some level, everybody understands that this is a fiction, but it can't be entirely a fiction because particularly in, you know, conflict zones, conflict situations where people's lives are kind of immediately at stake, um, you know, you're not going to be allowed in as an international actor unless the relevant parties with guns say, okay, you know, we don't expect them to help the other side in a way that is going to be deleterious to our interests, right? So at some level, I mean, it seems to me international organizations are sort of compelled to, you know, adopt this fiction that everybody understands is a fiction, but that everybody has to kind of be on board for the fiction. Does, is that kind of essentially what you're arguing? It's part of, of what we, we're showing. I mean, indeed, international organizations do have to comply with what their members and most often states want or at least accept for them to do. And, and for sure, depoliticization is very appealing for that because it's the idea that being neutral means being more acceptable. And in a way, international bureaucrats may be kind of forced to depoliticize to accomplish their job. Uh, but in, what's interesting in the book is that we show that they can also do it in a more proactive way. Uh, they, they bypass state's opposition, and, and we see that in, in multiple examples. Um, going back to the case of the UN Environment Program, UNEP, uh, what's interesting is how staff justify depoliticization for pragmatic reasons, especially in the intergovernmental context. So UNEP has been involved in um, activities related to environmental protection in conflict and post-conflict settings. And so in those situations, for sure, uh, for staff, they prefer a technical approach because that's a way to obtain uh, the necessary approval of states to conduct their operational task at the field level. Um, for them, um, UNEP is more accepted because it is precisely less political. And its, uh, it's apparent neutrality is it's like a, a precondition to intervene in the very politicized post-conflict context. It's also often a condition for them to secure the funding for these activities. And so depoliticization is follow like a form of functional necessity, but it also has a, a dimension of a pragmatic decision behind it. Um, what we've seen in different cases is that internationalization, leadership and personal, they use um, a practical or even technical agenda to promote cooperation between parties in conflict. So it's not only about obtaining the permission, but it's also to facilitate cooperation. Uh, here again, the, the work of UNEP uh, on what they call environmental peace building is a good illustration. They use the environment as a platform for cooperation to foster dialogue between opposing parties. And so they use uh, the environment as being a less controversial issue, uh, like, for example, natural resources management, to be able to bring together on the same table um, conf- like um, parties in conflict that otherwise wouldn't want to talk to each other. Um, another example uh, is the, the case of the peacekeeping mission in Haiti, uh, the MINUSTA. The MINUSTA set up environmental rehabilitation projects uh, as part of the um, community violence reduction. 
And in this project, they included members from different gangs um, that they had to work together on this supposedly apolitical project of renovation of the environment. And so on a daily basis, the gang members um, were useful for their community, but they also they, there was also some kind of socialization effect because they had to work together, even though they were in, in gangs that usually were in conflict. And so here, the environment was really used, and I quote, as a tool for pacification uh, that was used um, pragmatically by the mission. And so depoliticization fo follows like a form of um, practical rationality. And um, it is perceived as a pragmatic tool for internationalization to act as like neutral facilitators in a way. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, Marika, but, um, you know, I'm sort of curious, um, are there occasions that you could point to where this fiction that everybody in some ways is conspiring to sustain, um, you know, falls apart? And, you know, what happens when that fiction becomes revealed as a fiction? Maybe I, I would just say that uh, I like your <laughs> term of fiction in the sense that um, we do not think that depoliticization, for instance, is necessarily always a rational choice or a strategic um, tactic. Uh, it can be, but it's also something that uh, uh, professional uh, international civil servants or diplomats do because it's also part of the institutional uh, dynamic. Um, I think that one of the cases uh, that I will address also, if you want in, in, in more detail, uh, is the case of uh, all those debates on representativeness and legitimacy within international organization that um, diplomats uh, try to depoliticize because it's it, it, it's so linked to related to the legitimacy of the organization and power relation, and they try to do that, and sometimes it seems that they succeed in doing that, but in the end, it might be counterproductive because uh, then those who are frustrated with the reform not going on uh, will come back with more, I would say, uh, anger sometime or criticism toward the, the lack of legitimacy of these organizations. So it can be really counterproductive. And in the conclusion, we explore this kind of resistance to this fiction of depoliticization. Well, maybe you could say a little bit more about, you know, those cases now. Um, you know, what happens? Um, so um, if I take the example of uh, the, the third chapter, which is dedicated to uh, uh, the, the, the time-related depoliticization practices, uh, where we uh, point out a phenomenon of institutional amnesia, so it's uh, we 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 look at the way uh, international organizations, both at the institutional level but also individual level, uh, play on the on, on time as a strategic resource to depoliticize, and we show that in a variety of uh, of cases like the reform of the UN Security Council, the reform of the IMF quota system, or the ILO governing body, which I'm most familiar because it was my my doctoral research. Um, if I have to sum up the argument, I would say that uh, basically. Uh, there is a, a tactic where, through which uh, the more time passes, the more negotiations last in time, the more discussions are delayed and diluted through complexification of the issue at stake, the more deadlines are, are postponed, then the, the more likely it is to have depoliticization because then 
uh, actors become less and less mobilized by the issue uh, at stake. And then uh, this is why you can have a depoliticization because on the other hand, mobilization of actors is key to politicize certain issue. And what we observe in that chapters is that it sometimes it even leads to what we call institutional amnesia or memory loss as a powerful tool to depoliticize an issue. So uh, what we show is that through institutional amnesia, we show that um, in some cases, even in the most sensitive one, uh, some delegates and diplomats can forgot uh, what the issue, uh, the issue that was uh, at stake, uh, and they are more likely to do that because, unlike un- unlike civil servants, usually they have a more higher um, they have a higher uh, turnover rate. Uh, so, if I give you an example, and this is where the intuition for that idea came, um, it's when I was studying the reform of the uh, ILO governing body, which uh, had been extremely uh, sensitive and divisive for the organization for almost a century because it raised issue of representativeness and power relations between uh, different states. And this issue had been very sensitive until the beginning of the 1990s. And then it kind of disappeared. And when I was um, leading my research and conducting interviews with delegates in in, uh, 2011, uh, I was astonished by the fact that most of the delegates I was interviewing couldn't remember exactly what the reform was about. Uh, They knew that representativeness was an important issue, but they were completely unable to tell me in more details what was really the the, the issue uh, at stake. Or for those who knew about that, they were completely discouraged to reactivate the debate because it was associated to so many divisions and and past failure. So in that case, you have a process of both institutional fatigue and even that can lead to institutional amnesia. And you can see that even in the case of the UN Security Council, uh, even if you still have a lot of uh, mediatic and political attention. But if you come to the specificity of the process, Uh, There are only a few specialists or maybe uh, rather old diplomats who know very much really uh, what what the reform process is about and the different step uh, of this process. And the reason for that is because it has been engaged in the 1960s and then in the 1990s. And this strategy to delay and and postpone negotiation has proved effective in terms of depoliticization. Interesting. I mean, one of the things that really intrigued me in the book was your sort of argument that uh, politics is a kind of multifaceted thing and can mean different things at different times. And that in general, kind of anything under the right circumstances can be political. And so, I mean, obviously, you're focused on how that plays out in the context of international organizations. But I'm sort of curious you know, as political scientists, what what would you say about that? What kind of period do we live in now? What What is political in the current period that maybe wasn't political in, I don't know, 100 years ago or something like that? I mean, you know, I'm inclined to think a lot more is political now than would have been the case 100 years ago. But, you know, that um, nationalism took, you know, everyday perceptions of people and sort of turned them into political matters. Feminism had a lot to do with, you know, saying that the personal is, is political and in, in that sense, you know, broadening the realm of what constituted politics. I mean, how would you sort of characterize the situation today? 
maybe I could start by saying that uh, you're completely right uh, in the sense that you have waves in a way of politicization and depoliticization. It's really the, the two aspects uh, of the problems. Uh, you've mentioned that I'm working on transnational business actors now. And clearly, for instance, the issue of multinational corporations, although it started to be politicized in the 1970s, clearly seems to me way more politicized now with uh, what we say about um, uh, the, the power of multinational corporation becoming uh, more and more rival of states. You can see that ordinary citizens have something to say about multinational cooperation. I'm not sure it was always really the case or with that kind of intensity, maybe 40 or 50 years ago. So uh, I, I think what's, and, and I think I could say the same with labor. I think labor was way more politicized in the past than it is uh, to, today. So we really sh should really pay attention to context. What we really mean by that is that um, it, it's really, a, it's not that we live in a more more political or less political era. I think it really depends on, on what issues are at stake. And this is always a process of a higher intensity of politicization of, of lesser or of lesser intensity, if I, I could sum it up that way. I don't know if you still want to, to add something on that. Yes, maybe I can also bring the example of the environment because there is also quite uh, different phases of, of politicization uh, in the global governance uh, in terms of environmental issues. And of course, all, all of that depends on what you mean by political and politicization. If we consider that politicization is a way to open debate, to allow for contradiction, here we can see that there is a risk in the politicization of issues like the reality of climate change. Like the fact that climate change is happening, that is scientifically proven, should not be debated in a way. So um, we could say that here politicization is, is, is dangerous uh, to the, the cause of fighting climate change. But if we also consider politicization as a healthy way to question not the reality of climate change, but how we produce knowledge on climate change, how we frame the problem, here we can see why it's important also to consider the political dimension of the climate problem, uh, because it, it opens a discussion uh, to understand which scientific disciplines are involved, whose expertise is seen as legitimate, which actors are uh, supposed to be responsible, what type of solution can we implement. And so um, I think in, in this example, uh, we see that one of the biggest challenges for internationalization, that they have to promote science and scientific findings but without maintaining a form of technocratic monopoly, because this is precisely one of the, the main criticisms uh, in the legitimacy crisis of international organization today, that it reinforces some kind of backlash against those organizations. And it feeds uh, the discourses, like populist discourses, against multilateralism. And so international organizations have to defend scientific facts uh, that should not be politicized, but they also have to promote reflexivity and the pluralization of knowledge production. So I, I think in a way we could say that the depoliticization cards should not be played too often because it does have a counterproductive effect. If I can add something on that, because your question entailed also a little bit of a normative aspect on what should be or should not be political. I, I think that it also depends on the 
kind of regimes uh, and contexts we're living in. I think that this phrase, the personal is political or everything is political, it can have very different consequences whether you live in democratic uh, states where you still have a respect for your personal and individual freedom. And in that case, if saying that is saying, let's open a debate, let's have contradiction, let's have um, a discussion, then it's fine and it's very uh, valuable. But if you live in more authoritarian uh, states uh, or regimes where uh, the personal is political means that you have no longer any freedom for your uh, private life, then it can also become dangerous and be become a, a card for controlling every aspect of life. So if we take that also into the normative uh, sense, I think we really have to make a difference depending on what kind of political regimes uh, we have. Right. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And, and that there's, in my experience, no question that East Europeans you know, before 1989 or 1990, when they heard the idea that the personal is political, they panicked because they were familiar with the idea that the personal and everything else was political and didn't find that very appealing because it often meant, you know, you landed in jail. So obviously it totally mattered, you know, in what kind of political context you said such a thing. But in any case, I wanted to just move on a little bit to a sort of contemporary practical question of, you know, what the framework that you develop uh, in the book, you know, what kind of consequences is it going to have sort of in understanding and, and changing the real world, so to speak? I mean, since the uh, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, we're entering a new sort of new world order of some sort, uh, that the uh, security infrastructure that was created uh, after World War II uh, is now dead, basically, and uh, you know we're going to move to a Huntingtonian world finally for sure, or we're going to be in a world of all you know constant uh, culture wars and and you know arguments like this. But how would you see your work kind of fitting into a, a, an understanding of what seems to be coming down the pike? Although that's still you know quite unclear, I would say. Yes, it's a very difficult question because with the Russian invasion uh, and the war uh, still going on, um, we, I think we can say that it can be both. In fact, it can affect uh, the, the question of politicization or depoliticization in, 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 the, in, in two ways. Um, you can say that um, this is going to be a turning point, forcing international organizations to become definitely more politicized, but we can also see that as uh, a continuity in the in the sense that it will reinforce uh, depoliticization practice. So, but if I go with the first uh, hypothesis, uh, this idea that war and, and the fact that also it's not just a war, but an invasion, um, it will repoliticize some issue and arenas. We, we've seen that actually with regard to uh, the debate on, on issues like economic sanctions, which are likely to be depoliticized because it can and often be considered as a very expert issue where you first need expert um, economic knowledge, but also very political and strategic advice because we know that the effects of economic sanctions can be very hazardous. So you will be inclined to say, let's, let's have the expert view first. But at the same time, what we've seen is that, for instance, civil society, but also political leaders uh, at the domestic level have used the war in Ukraine as an opportunity to repoliticize our economic choice uh, both at the individual and collective levels, 
we have seen practices of naming and shaming certain corporations, for instance, doing business in Russia. Uh, we have seen um, political uh, leaders uh, challenging also the strengths of economic interdependence and ties with, with Russia. So I think this is one example of repoliticization of, um, of economics, which is quite interesting. But it can also repoliticize uh, areas uh, which uh, we could easily understood as uh, traditional depoliticized arenas like the International Labour Organization. Uh, I thought it was very interesting to see that uh, the ILO uh, governing body in April has adopted a resolution against the war in Ukraine uh, condemning the aggression, and they used that word aggression of Russia against Ukraine. They have decided to suspend any technical assistance um, in Russia except for those programs who had a humanitarian purpose, and they have stressed the devastating effects of war on labor, uh, thereby also challenging this idea that the ILO was uh, not about politics, or thereby challenging the idea that you could talk about labor without talking about the political context uh, at large. Uh, and now I will let Lucille uh, explain also how it could also lead to more uh, depoliticization. Yes, it, it's true that politicization may also appear as almost the, the obvious way forward because there is so everything is political, politicized at the moment with this uh, major um, event and, and the way like the, the conflict is, is moving a bit the boundaries of the political. But I, I think another way forward would be to see that the, it could be a revival of depoliticization within multilateralism because. Many international organizations were created after World War II precisely with the idea to foster peace through technical assistance, through technical cooperation. And the, this was a functionalist project, basically, with functional arrangements that would bypass political divisions. And so the current situation it could therefore push international organizations and actors wishing to promote multilateralism to prefer a depoliticized approach. Um, and the key argument is made by humanitarian organizations already today, saying that neutrality is also a tool for action. It gives access to assist population in need. It gives access to document what is happening. And so depoliticization is, is seen as a very useful tool in times of war, actually. And the war in Ukraine could revive a functionalist approach that is oriented towards the core function that international organizations are supposed to accomplish. Uh, the fact that uh, they, they, despite the conflict, uh, they still have the objective to promote uh, peace and that they should still do their work. Um, and maybe to, to conclude, there is this one, there is a problem in that tension between the fact that depoliticization as, as a tool to act is also depoliticization also tends to reproduce existing power relationships, it protects the status quo. And so the challenge here is to find a balance between um, avoiding those um, divisive politics and at the same time embracing the complexity and the political nature of all those problems that internationalization are, are supposed to solve. And so the future research on internationalization, um, it's still it's still way a uh, lot of stuff to to analyze in the future so i know you're your ir people as we say but uh i i you know the fact that i think you're both french nationals raises for me uh, a question related to french politics and and you know your framework about depoliticization i mean it seems to me that in a certain sense uh emmanuel macron 
has just been reelected because he's sort of unpolitical or, or apolitical. And the person who's political is uh, Marine Le Pen. She's kind of out there and, you know, she has her supporters. The left in France, like in other countries, seems to have been largely decimated. The Socialist Party's more or less gone. Um, and the French left, you know, has a certain vibrancy, but is a relatively marginal phenomenon, I think. Um, so you ha- you end up with this, you know, general election between somebody who's seen as not especially likable, but sane against somebody who's seen as, you know, maybe more likable to the ordinary person, but but a little too out there, a little too, uh, you know, authoritarian, a little too nationalist, etc. And so Macron wins because he's apolitical or depoliticized or something like that. Does, is that a reasonable interpretation of what's been going on in French politics? I mean, you know, what's happened there in the last five years or so is just incredibly striking. As I say, in particular, you know, one of the dominant parties for decades is essentially gone, the Socialist Party. So is that a reasonable characterization of what's going on or is that a mistake? It's a difficult question. Uh, but since I'm living in France and like Lucille who is living in Switzerland, I will try to, 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 un- to, to, to answer. Um, I think it refers really to the different meanings of, of politics because what you talked about when talking about the positioning of the far right or the far, far left is that their understanding of politics is really uh, ideology and also really trying to show that you have confrontation and divisions. Uh, and this is one of one understanding of, of, of politics. If you take the position uh, of Emmanuel Macron, I would definitely not say that it's depoliticized, uh, or at least, or maybe we could say that he He plays on depoliticization in the sense that he tried to uh, go beyond this idea that you have a, a, a fight or a, um, or a division, a strong division between left and right. Uh, but it's to me, it's not depoliticized or it's not apolitical in the sense that uh, he definitely has... Um, political ideas uh, and, uh, for instance, the fact that he really um, claims to be uh, liberal, even if sometimes uh, it's more uh, some kind of social liberalism with more state regulation, uh, he's also being very clear on his pro-European stance, for instance. So to me, I would not go as far as saying that he's depoliticized, clearly not, but maybe we could say that he played on some of these depoliticization uh, practices that we identified, saying that maybe, and with Cézanne, with the COVID crisis, we should rely more on expertise, for instance, or we should stop seeing everything through ideological lenses that we should focus on on that we should be pragmatic those are definitely some practices and logic that we've identified in the book although it's not uh, deals very much with the domestic uh, politics right but i think it does have relevance to this kind of case and yeah when i when i say depoliticized i mean basically he's a technocrat and, yes yeah you know, he's, he's, say that. it's ruled by experts essentially And uh, in the end, that trumps the, uh, you know, more visceral appeal for many people uh, of, you know, a kind of nationalist politics and a nationalist outlook that, you know, seems to be more populist, more, you know, for the people, so to speak. Um, And so, you know, he strikes me as 
a very smart and of course very ambitious sort of guy who isn't easy to like. I mean, you may recall that people used to say that George W. Bush seemed like, you know, a guy you'd want to have a beer with. Macron does not seem like a guy you'd want to have a glass of wine with necessarily. I mean, unless you were part of his, you know, class of sort of uh, highly educated experts. Um, so he's not necessarily the kind of politician who can win in those kinds of, you know, shaking hands with people and rubbing elbows with the people. He doesn't seem like that sort of character, but he, you know, in the end seems preferable to the right far right alternative. Yes, because in the end, what the elections have shown is that despite what we could see in terms of um, hate, because really, if you look at the polls, I mean, you have this kind of hate feeling that has been expressed, but still, uh, there is a majority uh, uh, which still remains in favor. I don't know, and I'm not a specialist on that, but maybe here the personal attributes have maybe played less a role than um, the, the position he has as uh, an alternative uh, between a far left or a far right um, uh, choice or position, maybe. Right. But in a way, right. what's also interesting is that he won less with less voices than the first time. So it's a, it's a technocratic turn that also took uh, place during the COVID crisis and all of what you were saying about the fact that he's a technocrat, uh, we saw, we see the backlash. That's a, that's a, a big example of, of the fact that it doesn't always work, and that there is criticism against this type of uh, of positioning. Uh, and so uh, we'll see what's going to be happening in five years. But this was not also, uh, I mean, it was not a clear, a very big win compared to uh, the first election. Right. Well, thank you very much. On, on that note, and we're going to conclude today's episode, a very interesting discussion of uh, politics and depoliticization in international organizations. I want to thank Marika Louis and Lucille Mertens for sharing their insights about politics and depoliticization in international organizations. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as always, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you for the next episode of International Horizons.